We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to it's her ratio. Okay, though. It's her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> I've been very, very fortunate that, that Jordan Peele has actually come to my UCLA class. I teach a black horror class at UCLA called The Sunken Place. And he's come to the class several times. And he's talked about how Get Out was born of sort of the isolation. Was, you know, there's a theme in every horror movie uh, sort of underpinning the emotions. And then this one, it's isolation. And when he started sketching it, he didn't even realize it was about race. His early notes were kind of about the odd man out. You know, like a bunch of college friends are getting together, but you're just the boyfriend and you don't know anybody and you're the odd man out. That was kind of how it surfaced for him. I think some of the racial aspects were more unconscious to him as he was no doubt navigating very white spaces, you know, working on Mad TV or I don't know if he, yeah, I think he was working on Mad TV at that time. So, so that's, and then he realized it was about race. And, and in fairness, uh, M. Night uh, Shyamalan, when he did The Sixth Sense, he didn't realize that Bruce Willis's character was a ghost. Spoiler. So sometimes as the creator, you don't even know what the project is until you've been at it for a while. Tanana Reeve Du is an old friend of mine. She is an amazing author. She is a professor at UCLA of an amazing class about Black horror films and Afrofuturism. Jordan Peele drops in on her class every once in a while to address them about his films. So I wanted to talk to Tanana Reeve about black horror films, Candyman, Get Out, Us, Tales from the Crypt, and talk also about Afrofuturism, like Black Panther, and see what is so important about black horror films and what is so necessary about Afrofuturism. This is awesome. It's my friend Tanana Reeve Du on Torre Show. You are the the queen of black horror, teaching about it, writing it. I wanted to talk about that and Afrofuturism with you. Really fascinating stuff to me. Um, 
Good. Black horror first. Yes. Because um, I, I think there's something special about when you add race and the black experience into the horror uh, genre. What, for you, what, what, what does that conjure up? How does that change the whole dynamic? Well, that's a great question, Torre. And black horror is many different things. So I want to start with that because uh, I'm promoting, you know, the fact that Shudder is about to do a black horror anthology movie called Horror Noir. And my husband, Stephen Barnes, and I co-wrote two of the segments. And someone retweeted me like, well, if it's just more black trauma, you can keep it. And I'm like, whoa, you haven't even seen it. (laughs) Slow your roll. I do think that there are some people who think black horror just means so it's racism as the monster stories. And I will first of all say that there have been some incredibly powerful racism as the monster stories get out, notably in 2017. But you could go back to Rusty Cundiff in 1995, early earlier. But let's just talk about Tales from the Hood, which is retribution horror with racism as the monster racist cops racist politicians, kind of a visual validation for the kinds of experiences that we have had as African-Americans just trying to live our lives in the United States. Um, And horror is a great social mechanism to unpack it from a little bit of a distance, right? it's, It's not exactly the thing itself, but, you know, there's some pretty deep police brutality portrayed in Tales from the Hood, Um, there's a body snatching abduction operation going on and get out racism as the monster is like one of the most striking things about the pilot of Lovecraft country, for example, Mm. where you don't know whether you're more frightened to be on that dark road near sundown or sitting in a diner, just trying to order food. Like my mother got arrested for and later tear gassed for in 1960, right? In Tallahassee, Florida, or the, the so-called monsters, which, which are not real, you know? And in some ways the monsters are less scary than actual history. I mean, like I said, in, in the documentary Horror Noir, History of Black Horror, Black history is Black horror. So there is definitely a component Absolutely. where it's so tempting and I think often very powerful to lean into those experiences for the basis of horror. But I want to add that's not the only way to create Black horror. And sometimes it can be done in a way that is re-triggering for audiences, right? So if you have a history of lynching in your family or you have a history of police encounters in your family, then watching that represented on television or film might not feel entertaining right? To some people. So I, I like what Nia DaCosta did with the new Candyman, which was to make the horror more about dread, the monster within, body horror, with history sort of at a distance with a puppet show to show the racial violence, you know what I mean? Sort of step back a little bit. Uh, but having said all that, and racism is definitely the monster also in Candyman. Uh, history is the monster in Candyman. The new Candyman, especially. But um, having said all that, Black horror is many, many different things. There are as many ways to express Black horror as there are to express any kind of horror. The difference to me is that Black horror has a Black protagonist or even an all-Black cast, but let me not get greedy, a Black protagonist who has agency, 
who drives the story and who was not created specifically to be a trope. Because, you know, sometimes I look at an ensemble horror movie that is not Black, and you know, the one brother or sister in the cast or the one queer person in the cast, you're thinking, oh, shoot, you know they're going to die first. (laughs) And, you know, this used to be kind of a joke. Uh, I mean, not a joke, it's serious business. It has to do with the lack of representation, the lack of dimensional characterization. You know, there are a lot of reasons it happens. But But we we laugh to keep from crying at it. You really have to laugh to keep from crying. And it kind of became a joke where people, you know, even on the show Dragula, uh, I I saw one of the black contestants saying, oh, I better not go first. Yeah, or let the white people go first because they won't die. (laughs) You know, I mean, we all get this. And I'd like to say that it's in the past. But what I have found, ironically, is because so many now networks, streamers, executives are pushing for more diversity, a lot more screenwriters are starting to pepper in these marginalized characters. And we're going to the same tropes like Keith David. Okay. Keith David was in the thing and survived the thing. I think that was like back in the 1980s, but I saw him recently on a horror show where he died in the first 10 minutes. And I'm like, are we back to this? (laughs) I I think one one thing that I think is really special uh, about this genre when white people, white characters are in horror situations, there's generally, generally there's not a political aspect to it. And because there's this politicized aspect to it, the black horror films have more substance. And I want to talk about the three biggest ones the last few years, Candyman, we go backwards, Candyman, because there's this great epic racial aspect to it, I'm sorry if you haven't seen it already, but the villain is actually a hero, right? Mm. But it takes a while to see that. And Mm -hmm. it's not just Jason or Freddy just killing just to kill, but there is a reason why we are having this experience with him. There is a reason why he's doing what he's doing to avenge black people who have been traumatized and killed in the past. And I'm like... Yes. Okay. Like, I don't want to go see just people get slashed up just for the psych, just to have my heart rate go up, but to have this racial aspect to it, um, that, that makes it much more meaningful to me. I would absolutely agree. And it's even more meaningful when you consider that Nia DaCosta's Candyman in 2021 is in direct conversation with Bernard Rose's Candyman from the nineties because it was in his adaptation, you know, they departed from the Clive Barker short story and made Candyman black in the movie. That's not how he was in the short story. And then they took a housing project, which was not described racially at all in the short story and specifically made it a black housing project, Cabrini Green. So those are the decisions the filmmakers made. They decided that Candyman's monstrosity was born from his lynching. Okay, they decided to pepper in that black American history. But what they didn't do was tell a story about black trauma through a black lens. The original Candyman is very much. Even though it really scared black audiences and a lot of us love the movie and still won't say it five times in the mirror, all that. It wasn't meant for us. You know, it's meant for a white audience. And there are ways in which fear of blackness is what helps drive the fear in the movie Candyman, which is way more apparent in some of the other sequels. It's like Black Man is jump scare. You know, it's not not so much in the original, but 
definitely some of those the sequels lean into that. And what Nia DaCosta and Monkey Paw did, Jordan Peele co-wrote that script with Wen Rosenfeld and Nia DaCosta. They said, okay, let's talk about black trauma then. If, if, we're, if you're going to make a movie that's fueled by this fear and is fueled by black trauma, let's actually make it about black trauma, but through a black lens. And let's create a Candyman who stands for us instead of standing against us is what is what they he, he really does stand up for us and right. it almost it, it almost seems like the beginning of uh a, a franchise of like you know here's the here's a superhero who's going to who's going to re- you know take revenge for the things that have happened to us and to what you were saying before within the movie i think almost i think almost very clearly the black people with one notable exception for the obvious reason take it very seriously you do not say candy man in the mirror you don't play with that it's the Which white characters is the white characters who like play around with it and like want to like see let me see what happens and it's kind of like we know trauma is real for them they're like what what trauma doesn't happen let's play around with it well you know i'm glad you brought that up because that that speaks to sort of a black sensibility that has often been missing when black characters appear in these mainstream horror films that weren't written by black creators. It's like, yes, it's a stereotype that we will run. Like if we see other people running, we'll just run. And, and like, is it Cedric the entertainer who has that great joke, right? You don't need to, don't need to have a meeting. Don't need to find out what's wrong. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll all just talk about we'll it. Figure it out later. After. <laughs> And this idea, like you're sitting in the movie theater going, what are you doing? Get out of there. And that it's a stereotype, but it comes from experience. It comes from either a history of trauma or current trauma where we know that sometimes life can go way wrong in the blink of an eye. Like you're on your way home, minding your business, and you see those police flashes in your mirror that might mean you don't make it home, right? And I was just rewatching Psycho. There's this classic Hitchcock movie, Psycho, and there's a moment where the protagonist, a woman, is feeling guilty and trying to flee, and she's driving, and there's a police car following her, and it's supposed to be this really heart-thumping moment. It's like high tension. It's like one of the first high-tension moments of the movie. That's Tuesday for Black people, right? Right, 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 right. right <laughs> That's right. Tuesday. That's last night. That's... Right. So we're living with this like ever present understanding that we're surrounded by people who may not like us, who may not like us on the basis of our skin color, who may want to hurt us on the basis of our skin color, who may stop us or arrest us or assault us or murder us on the basis of our skin color. So so, yeah, we're going to run when the if we don't know what, why other people are running. And it's the privilege to have curiosity about danger. And this is where the the sort of mainstream white horror characters who have had, I would assume, somewhat more pampered lives and histories are like, hello, <laughs> you know, not picking up a weapon, you know, just sort of because <laughs> danger has not reached into their homes and touched some of them in the same way. So it's a privilege not to be afraid. It's a privilege to just sort of wander your way through a scary scenario with this confidence that you'll be all right. We don't have that privilege. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. It's you're right. It's such a trope in black comedy that like, you know, oh, as soon as I walk in the house and the ghost says, boo, I'm out of there. I'm not yeah. sticking around to find out where did that sound come from? Let's look in the attic. Let's look in the basement. Like, no, the movie went over in five minutes because I would have been out of there. And we know we know that's, that's real. It is real. And it's a real challenge as a black horror creator to make characters who can both forward the plot because, you know, they have to be exposed to something scary. But at the same time, not behave foolishly or not behave in a way that resonates with the audience. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's go to um, Get Out, which I resisted watching for a long really? time. Because I, I, well, I don't like horror films. I don't go to the movies to have oh. my adrenaline jacked up. And people kept saying, it's not really a horror film. And finally I saw it and I loved it. It's amazing. And I've seen it many times. Um, and once I finally broke through it's not 
it's not really a horror film. It kind of plays with some horror tropes, but it, you can't put it in the same category as as a Saw or you know a Blair Witch Project or some of these other things that are really trying to scare the hell out of you. Oh well, this is. I'm really glad you point brought that up because there are so many different kinds of horror and. You know, I I watch classic slashers. You know, I've watched all of the Saw movies. I'm not going to lie. I've watched all the Friday the 13th movies. But slasher is not my favorite genre in horror. So I think the way Get Out is horror doesn't feel like the same kind of horror as a Saw movie. It's more of a situational horror. Like, oh, you're the only black guy in this house. This brother is wigging out at dinner trying to fight me what is wrong with him something is just not right that the other black people are acting strange so it's this feeling of dread and uneasiness that just ratchets up more and more as the movie goes along and the horror is more of the whole situation here's a family a white family kidnapping black people <laughs> to sell their bodies to rich white people that, that's a horrific premise and so the horror kind of lies more in the premise and they sort of slow realization that Chris has that he has no allies in this house. It's a creeping horror, right? And some people might call it a thriller. I definitely consider it horror, but it's not. And and listen, I love horror, but there are horror movies I can't enjoy. Um, Devil's Rejects, no offense to Rob Zombie, is just sort of, to me, unrelenting violence, you know? And the, and part, of the, part of the thing that, uh, that, that was so powerful about Get Out was the sense that a typically black sense that you can't trust, you know, what you are seeing, the gaslighting, the white family that seems to be so progressive and welcoming and please come in and it's fine for you to date our daughter. And like, she doesn't like even your boss love you. Yeah, yes, your boss. Yes. And she, she doesn't even love you. She's just reeling you in for the group, right? Like I, I, I can't trust any of you. None of you actually like me. Yeah, that is the whole thing. Um, you know, I, I've been very, very fortunate that, that Jordan Peele has actually come to my UCLA class. I teach a black horror class at UCLA called The Sunken Place. And he's come to the class several times. And he's talked about how Get Out was born of sort of the isolation. Was You know, there's a theme in every horror movie uh, sort of underpinning the emotions. And then this one, it's isolation. And when he started sketching it, he didn't even realize it was about race. His early notes were kind of about the odd man out, you know, like a bunch of college friends are getting together, but you're just the boyfriend and you don't know anybody and you're the odd man out. That was kind of how it surfaced for him. I think some of the racial aspects were more unconscious to him as he was no doubt navigating very white spaces, you know, working on Mad TV or I don't know if he, yeah, I think he was working on Mad TV at that time. So, so that's and then he realized it was about race. <laughs> and, and in fairness, uh, M. Night uh, Shyamalan, when he did The Sixth Sense, he didn't realize that Bruce Willis's character was a ghost. Spoiler. So sometimes as the creator, you don't even know what the project is until you've been at it for a while. But, yeah, that feeling of being isolated and everything that's implied from isolation, like if you're surrounded by people who see you as the other, the next step is they might want to hurt you, which turned out to be the case. Or in, in the worst case scenario, they might want to kill you. What else have you learned from, um, from, from talking to Jordan about his movies? 
Well, every single time he visits a class, I learned something new, either about his process, um, that relationship between comedy and horror, I think is very important. Like, for instance, I just did a panel with uh, Wynn Rosenfeld, who who is the president of his company, Monkey Paw, who's known Jordan Peele since they were both 14. And he was making the point that he always knew Jordan is that horror guy. So for him, the comedy aspect was the thing that didn't fit, <laughs> you know, for all of us who got to knew him, who got to know him first through comedy. It was the horror thing that didn't seem to fit. But to me, they're actually two sides of the same coin. And I think for him, too. Because there's a similarity in the setup where you're setting up the audience expectations and then you skew to the side. And that's where you get a laugh. If you're a comedian or a comic, like you're playing against expectations or it's what creates a scare. Like in Get Out, when we realize that Rose is not giving up those cards, you know, I can't give up these keys, babe. You know, then you realize, oh, shoot, I thought she loved me and she's in on this and that because she was playing it up. She was he was he told me uh, he told the class he was playing against that white savior trope where there's always one good white person, you know, and since his viewers were so accustomed to that, we're not thinking, well, there's no way he could have a movie where all the white people are bad, (laughs) even including that police officer who pulled the who like is asking for Chris's ID. Why? He wasn't driving. Well, you got to ask for Chris's ID. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) You know, so so he's like so he's talked about having a mischievous side, you know, and and also the other thing I think which we saw in us, which people don't talk about as much as Get Out and which is a is a it's a very different movie. You know, it's not racism as the monster, but it is also about isolation because this family is in Santa Cruz. They're the only black family vacationing in their beach house, you know. In Santa Cruz, that's not a huge, maybe if it was Martha's Vineyard, it wouldn't be that isolating, but it's Santa Cruz. So they're the only black family there. And that's kind of sort of an undercurrent. But the real movie is about the monster within. And he wanted to be very clear that this was a dark skinned black family. You know, Lupita and Yango had never had a leading role when he cast her, which he thought was ridiculous. And then he wanted to surround her with a, a, a he wanted her to have a dark skinned husband and children who look like they would be the result of that union. <laughs> so well, which- I, I, he, he is I want to I, I want to focus on horror. But this the, the, the skin color point is absolutely something. I mean, Daniel Kaluuya also fits into this, that, that Jordan Peele has clearly said, I, um, I I see this deep beauty in dark skin. I know how to light it to make it look amazing. And I, I'm going to continually uh, give you, you know, dark skinned black people as leads, as beautiful, as, as loved, as wanted, as sexy, as attractive. And that's when one of the things that is really empowering to a lot of black audiences to see Daniel and Lupita um, and Winston get these big roles where they are beautiful and beloved uh, people. Right. And, 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 and it's not maybe directly tied to the horror, except again, on sort of that subterranean level, because it just makes them stand out all the more. Um, And, and then you let the horror bleed in, which in, in us is about doppelgangers and, you know, people have seen it and really privilege again, because black people also have privilege that other black people don't have. So I think that's also an important conversation. That was part of the conversation in Candyman too. black gentrifiers 
moving into the neighborhood that used to be Cabrini Green. So horror, you know, back to your original point, when you insert blackness, whether or not horror is the monster, I mean, whether or not racism per se is the monster, having black characters and black experiences just brings a little extra seasoning to the story. Just like I love watching foreign language horror. I just watched a movie from Thailand called Medium. I've never seen a horror movie from Thailand. That scared the crap out of me because it has different packaging for the belief system. So it's a possession story. I've seen The Exorcist, but I haven't seen what an exorcist or a a possession story looks like from, from that cultural viewpoint. And it's that novelty that makes it scary. It's interesting that the notion of the sunken place has become the most uh, portable notion to come out of Jordan Peele's movies. And we use that phrase, the sunken place is this ultimate pejorative, right? To diss anybody who's not going along with the program, uh, who's not part of the community. Um, that, that, I mean, it, it, I, I, do you think there's a disconnect between the way that the sunken place is presented in the film and the way that we use it colloquially? Is that it, is, is such a great question. And I think to a degree, yes. And Jordan Peele also addressed this uh, in one of the class visits because he kind of leaned into it, too, at one point and tweeted that I think Clarence Thomas was in the sunken place. I don't know. Right. Quote me on that. But and then he kind of regretted it later because he thinks it's a little it's reductive to just look at the sunken place as sort of what we might call an Uncle Tom, you know, someone who is not about the business of black people, but is about the business of upholding white supremacy, that that coon label, right? Uh, someone who's dancing for the pleasure of white people or, or whose program is about. And he feels like the sunken place. First of all, one thing he said was that when he first conceived of it during the writing, he was thinking of the prison industrial complex. And he, he said it brought tears to his eyes, like how many people are behind bars because of trivial charges drug possession, you know, just trivial charges. And it, it really just brought him to tears. So it represented mass incarceration, right? But it's also, he said to him, it's also internal and external subjugation. So it's the ways that other people subjugate us and it's the ways that we subjugate ourselves. It's not his fault that he falls into the sunken place. And when we say... Clarence Thomas or Candace Owens or whoever in the sunken place, we are using it as a pejorative. You have, you know, like fallen under the white man's spell, but he, it's not, his, his, he's not really in the sunken place in the way that we use it. Well, no, I mean, in the movie, it's literally, uh, you've been abducted and hypnotized and you're frozen and can't have agency over your own body. So in some ways you could look at an NFL player. Uh, who can get out there and run and catch and get hurt for the pleasure of the audience. But if you take a knee, oh, you're not going to get hired in the whole NFL. Don't try to speak. Don't try to like show any of your actual agency. Uh, just, just, you know, run, dance. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, 
Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Play, right? So that's a version of the sunken place. What happened to Colin Kaepernick? Uh, for those who didn't get the reference. Oh, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> but in the movie, it's a very literal hypnosis, brain transfer thing. And as the audiences, we're just sort of interpreting what does that mean to us? Like when when do I feel like I'm in the sunken place? Or when do I feel like other people are trying to put me in the sunken place? So my one big criticism of Get Out is the ending. And we know now the original ending, a white cop shows up, he's arrested, he goes to prison, then he talks to Lil Rel in prison and tells him what really happened. And I think uh, Jordan Peele showed that to audiences and they were like, this is too, and probably to the film, probably to the studio, and they're like, this is too downer of an ending. A Hollywood movie cannot have a downer ending. And- so then, of course, the more comedic ending of Lil Rel shows up and the day is saved. And everybody like, loves know, that ending. Give me a- <laughs> not everybody. Not everybody. Definitely not. Okay. Me. I feel like it, it was too easy and pat. And, and it, it the movie has this, this, this seriousness to it, this sensibility of like, we're going to tell the truth about racism in America. And you know, and yeah. You tell, tell the truth. The brother does not get away quite often. How how are we gonna be standing over a bloody white woman and get away? Well, okay. Well, here's what I'll say to that. No, okay. <laughs> My response to that is this: um, horror, really more so than drama, like say Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, that the adaptation that Barry Jenkins did. It's horror is more entertainment. It's supposed to be fun you know what i mean like even if it's really gritty and gory like a hereditary and it's just really bleak for those of us who like that kind of thing it's fun (laughs) to watch hereditary because it doesn't remind us of something that happened to anyone real right it's not like something that happened to your mom or your dad or your grandfather 
I personally think that the reason that ending was changed and the, and the way audiences responded, and that's why I think it was because of audience response that they changed it, is that we know what would have really happened at the end of Get Out. In fact, I'll take it a step further. Um, those cops would have shot him on the road. He wouldn't have been in prison. Mm. Okay? But that, I wouldn't have wanted to watch that. That's not, to me, that's not a fulfilling emotional experience. And being in prison, okay, that's a step up. And in the way Peel wrote it, and, and yeah, there's a lot of truth in it, obviously. The truth of prison, because look at mass incarceration, that's all roads lead there for a lot of people. But for Jordan Peel, the triumph for him in that ending was that Chris was himself again. And even though he couldn't remember everything that had happened or the names of the people involved, he had at least clung on to his individuality, which is a huge triumph. But I think for audiences did not feel like enough of a triumph. Um, and, you know, the way those cheers come when Lil Rel, we know it's fantasy. We know yeah. Lil Rel wasn't going to find that house. And that, that. <laughs> I mean, it's fantasy. It's fantasy. But I think, you know, I would like to err. I'm happy to err on the side of um, a triumphant ending in horror. You know, sometimes horror endings are bleak. I love triumphant endings in horror. I mean, we definitely are like, tense 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 through the movie and then as soon as Lil Rel pops out it's like oh like wow now we can relax everything's gonna be fine um Us is uh extraordinarily powerful film not really a it can we say it's about racism it's definitely about race and the black experience but it's not about racism no it's really not as much well certainly not as much as Get Out and I would argue that while it's important that the characters be black from Jordan Peele's standpoint, you obviously could also have made that movie with, with white characters or any other ethnic group, because it's ultimately about the monster within it's ultimately about who are we and who are we stepping on, (laughs) on our way to, to what we're striving for. Who's under our feet while we're not paying attention. Don't look. Uh, Lupita's character says when there's a a man being loaded into the ambulance, a vagrant, you know, don't look, which is kind of our whole societal attitude about people who don't have homes, who don't can't afford food, don't who are mentally ill. Don't look. So it's really a statement on privilege. And that could be universal. But I love the fact that it's a black creator doing that. And I really think that part a big part of the future of black horror is that kind of storytelling where it's a story coming from a black creator. And it's informed by like that isolation, like you're the only black person that beats like there's this aerial shot that just makes it so obvious. They are the only black bodies on that whole beach. But then then we're done with that part. They were done. (laughs) And it's just that little bit of nuance that makes it slightly different than the way a white filmmaker would have approached the story. It's, it's, it, you know, the, each of the family members is really powerful. It's actually really interestingly constructed family in that um, it's really a maternal family, right? Like she is the strong and powerful one. Um, she is the one who is the anchor who is saving them and making it happen for them much more than, uh, Winston Duke's character. Well, he fair, tries. Yeah, he does try. And it's, I, you know, it's funny because Winston Duke is such a, 
a large actor, a large man. You know, I, I was yes. at a junket once and I saw him in a hallway and he was the whole hallway. I was like shocked yeah, he's big. at his physical presence. But um, I also think Peel kind of based his personality on himself. Like I noticed even the way he pushes his glasses up, it's like, oh, OK, that's supposed to be Jordan's character. And so Jordan doesn't see himself as that, you know, uh big buff guy who's going to confront everybody. I mean, it's very self-conscious the way Winston Duke finally has to go outside and like put on his, you know, code switching and be like, the police is on their way. You know, like that base. <laughs> I told you to get off my property. <laughs> but it's so, you know, self-conscious and fake. It's not him at all. Um, and Lupita is the stronger one in some, and even Zora, you know, I, I love the moment where, Winston Duke says to his son, get the bat. And his son is like, what bat? <laughs> like, literally, his son is not tracking it. They even have a bat. And before he can even say anything else, Zora has shown up to hand him the bat. Because Zora is that one that you want on your zombie crew. She's, a, she's thinking fast. She's ahead of it. But Lupita's character, in all fairness, is the only one who really understands what they're up against. Yes. And of course so. she does, because she comes from that world. I mean, yeah. Zora is really... Zora is really interesting because we we really do see her grow up very rapidly. Yeah, like when she starts to drive, and she's like, "It makes sense for me to drive." And they're like, "What are you talking <laughs> about? Like, come on now, like, bam, 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 like, uh, you do make a good point, <laughs> like, you know." And she's she takes the reins very quickly. Yeah, you know, I th I think good characterization is really the core of any good horror story. You you if you start with characters who are textured and nuanced and believable. Like I think Jason's character is a bit on the spectrum. You know, you're not quite sure what it is, but he pays attention to time differently, space differently, but it turns out to be a gift when he's interacting with his tethered because he, uh, he's able to get a control over his tethered because part of him was already kind of off in a fantasy world. Right. So he, he adapts really quickly to, like you do what I do. And it's like they have this unspoken language. So that turns into his superpower. And, you know, like you said, all the characters just have these great traits and and you can throw good characters into any situation. And the audience has no choice but to believe it. One filmmaker I spoke to acknowledged uh, us as an extraordinary picture, but said there's 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 something there's perhaps a pee underneath the mattress that 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 may bother in that you never forget who you are. And the movie seems to ask us to accept that she does not, Lupita's character does not recall that she actually is from underneath. You know oh, what I'm saying? I think she, I think she recalls, but she was suppressing it. I mean, the way I read the beginning of the movie, all of her nervousness about the coincidences and like something's closing in on her. I think that's what she's saying out loud to Winston Duke. But uh, on rewatching it, like after the first time, I've just always assumed she knew good and damn well exactly what was happening. Or she knew that if they got to that beach, it was going to be too close to where that portal is. I mean, that's just how I'm reading it. Your friend may be right. Maybe she has suppressed it. Uh, that is maybe a question that isn't entirely answered because we don't have access to her private thoughts. But I do think you could read it either way that she she perfectly well knew and understood from the minute those tethers showed up, she knew it was up and she's just faking for her family <laughs> or maybe she suppressed it. 
No, the notion of suppression actually makes a ton of sense. Um, cause there are, cause, cause Jordan has clearly given us clues that she's like, I don't want to go to the beach. One thing that jumped out at me when they are snapping to the beat of, uh, uh, of, I got five on it. And I was like, she's not on the beat. Is that like the film just didn't get the sound right? Like what? And like, it's only on like a second or third watching that you're like, no, no, that is supposed to be a clue of like she's not really who she seems to be. Yeah, it's you know, with a Jordan Peele film, you can just really study every like frame and try to find the significance of it. I don't remember offhand if he ever addressed that, if that was like the way it was cut, or if that was like you said, meant to be a clue, but it works. It works as a clue, you know, because there's something not quite right about her. And it is a it is kind of just funny that here she is trying to school her son. Um, and I remember when my mother taught me how to hear rhythm. You know, you do have to teach your children. <laughs> And uh, and uh, she's not doing it right, which is just kind of funny. Or, or was it an accident? I don't know. I don't know. The the two characters that Lupita does is an extraordinary acting uh, performance. That they are similar and yet different in these amazing ways, and the two different vocal performances are just so 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 thrilling to as an artist to see her pull off. She really should have gotten two Oscar nominations, I think, and didn't <laughs> even get one, right? But um yeah. absolutely quite a feat. Quite a feat in acting both to be sort of the revolution la- revolution leader Red and Adele, you know, who's living the life of privilege that Red should have had. So, yeah, that's a great great role for any actress, but especially a black actress, given the kinds of roles that our heroes are usually offered or not offered more to the point. What do you make of the ending of it? Cause it does, you know, like get out clearly lands on a point in this, this story is completed. Us doesn't really finish. In some ways us feels like the story is beginning. Right. Yes. So it's the end of one story, which is this one family was able to escape. But clearly families all around them were not, including their neighbors, you know, um, and the line of, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Hands across America imagery. That was her her only prompt, I guess, for how revolution looks, which is kind of funny because that was not a very successful uh, campaign, which I guess that was his point. (laughs) So they they took this failed campaign, but that was all she knew (laughs) is this performative activism, (laughs) but but it's performative, but it's also murder, you know, and and so clearly that last helicopter shot, you're seeing the hands across America. This is spreading like a virus. So there could be in us, too. I think it implies uh, they're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. You know, this one family got away, but y'all better watch out. I mean, it's 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 going to if it, it's going to come for you later. This yes. family will get killed eventually because yes. everybody's dying here. I want to um, just talk a little bit with you in the remaining time about Afrofuturism because I think Afrofuturism is a term that some folks hear and don't feel like they know what it means. And like, let's just start just let's just define it so fo- and 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 give us some you know some popular examples. I mean, I think 
Black Panther is absolutely a key example of Afrofuturism. I would agree with you. And and the, the reason a lot of people don't understand it is because there are several sort of definitions of it. You know, um, it was a term coined in the 90s by a cultural critic, Mark Derry, but also Black artists are sort of embracing what they think Afrofuturism is, you know. So the way I teach Afrofuturism at UCLA is that it is the speculative art of the African diaspora. Some people would say that it's specifically African-American, right? And and that's fair because when it started, it was mostly considered an African-American phenomenon, but I teach it very broadly. Although I do want, and, and, and by speculative arts, I mean the cinema, the books and the music of speculation. So what does speculative music sound like? Well, it can be Missy Elliott who has a lot of science fiction imagery in her music videos. It could be Miles Davis. It can mean an artist who takes two musical genres and combines them to create a new sound like Miles Davis did with fusion. And then that's right. Or Janelle Monet, who is also genre smashing with her music and has images of futurism in her videos. Uh, Sun Ra, who didn't mm-hmm, even think he was from this planet. Listen to that jazz and tell me that's well, from Earth, right? So it's funk it, with the mothership connection. P funk, the mothership. So it's the in music, it's it's genre bending, it's moving uh, the conversation forward in terms of what music sounds like and what black music sounds like. But it's also artists who have a fascination with fantasy and science fiction imagery in their videos and their lyrics. You know, I think that word futurism implies that it's only futurism, which for a lot of people means only science fiction. But I would say that Afrofuturism also includes fantasy, which is made up creatures. Horror is fantasy, you know, werewolves or fantasy. <laughs> so I, it, I, I, I would include horror, magical realism, fantasy and science fiction and Afrofuturism by black artists. And then I want to give a shout out to African futurism, which is really its own thing. You know, a lot of African uh, artists um, are are starting to make real uh, strides in in having their work apologized. You know, Nnedi Korofor is like a Nigerian American writer, probably best known, uh, but she's not alone. And she very much wants people to understand that what she does is African futurism, and for magic, it's African jujuism. Um, but I do tend to include the diaspora when I teach it. And this is incredibly important if black horror is taking the trauma of the past and, you know, recontextualizing it and turning it into art. Afrofuturism is showing we will exist in the future. There is, we don't worry. We will make it through this. We will get to the spaceships. We will get to the moon. We will get to, you know, the year 3000. I know. And, and, yeah. And continue to be fly in that period. And so it it is it is sort of exciting and calming, like, okay, whew, we're going to make it through. Well, and it's, I'm laughing, but it's not funny because here's the thing. We've been erased in a lot of science fiction, especially in cinema, but also in literature. Uh, where, or if we weren't erased, we wish we weren't included because it's these very tropey, you know, um, servile roles. So think back to the original Star Wars, 1977. No black people, you know, and I don't think George Lucas did that on purpose. I don't think he has anything against black people, but yet we were erased entirely 
from the future, which when people do that, it's a pretty aggressive act. And I also consider it uh, an equally and even I would say more aggressive act when we are erased in historicals, <laughs> because it's almost like some filmmakers, OK, this is a period piece. So we're just not going to have any black people in the cast, which is such bull. We have always been here. We are always going to be here. And part of the reason we're facing the uh, political struggles we are now with like whole segments of the population who don't think black and brown people, our votes should count. Part of the reason we're facing that is because they grew up watching those movies in the 1940s and 1950s. We weren't here. We didn't belong then. And in their minds, we don't belong now. And even at the time, you know, there were agitators within SAG, Boris Karloff being one. From what I understand, who say you should have a certain percentage of black people in every crowd scene. I mean, they were always trying to address this. It's not like we're so woke because we're contemporary. W.E.B. Du Bois was was protesting against the birth of a nation in 1915. They could see what it was while it was happening. And it's and it's not. I mean, you know, any individual filmmaker might say it was an accident, but culturally, it's not an accident. How often we are erased and left out. And we're still it's, fighting against that today. It's crazy. You made me think about the the Star Wars example, and it's crazy that um, in that first series, the only major black character was a villain. <laughs> That's another one they like. It's like if okay, we're gonna have you in it. You're gonna be either a buffoon or a villain. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Billy D. Williams, uh, Lando Calrissian is super cool, right? So he brings all that black. Man, seventies flavor, swag, absolutely. But he's a he's he's a sellout and ultimately a villain. Right. I didn't think of him that way, but yeah, I guess you're right. Well, he sells <laughs> out to Han Solo to Darth Vader. You're right. It's I need to refresh. But yeah, even okay. So that's something else that we're fighting against. And you know, the whole point of it, and and to go back to Afrofuturism too, showing that we exist in the future. I think it actually also goes beyond that. It's leadership models that will help lead everyone to a better future. Like I'm in favor of telling people, you know, I don't need to convince people that my path is the right path. But if my path is working and their path isn't working, eventually they will have to follow my path because if you want to survive. Right. Um, So black women have been really at the forefront in Afrofuturism from Octavia Butler you know, to N.K. Jemison, Nettie Okorfor, I already mentioned. So there are a lot of big followings, you know, that these Black writers have. And they're, Octavia's a great example. You know, she lived a very isolated existence and she spent a lot of time just sort of studying the world and studying where we, she thought we were going wrong. So there's literally nothing happening today that would have surprised Octavia if she had lived to see it. Our capacity for denial, check. Our, our tendency toward hierarchy, like ranking ourselves above other groups, check, <laughs> you know, all we're seeing now in the Trump era, the post-Trump era, the COVID era, all of that is in Octavia's work because she was a student of human nature. And if you read her, it makes you a better human. It doesn't just make you a better black person. Uh, it, it makes you a better human to understand human nature the way Octavia did. You, um, one of my favorite, you reminded me of one of my favorite moments in Black Panther, um, which is when they are first arriving into Wakanda and there's the spaceship 
and they wave to the the goat herders on the horses. Yeah. And I'm like the the combination of the past or tradition and the futurism is like it just it gives me chills to think about that and like coming into the city and the city is futuristic. Um, it, it, that that just just that is super powerful to me. I love that you brought that up because that is definitely a component of Afrofuturism is that combination of the past and the present. Even something like Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, which is a period piece. Okay, so it's set as a historical, but it's all about moving into the future. So that the family is about to leave to go to the mainland. There, there's technology, the camera, which you know it doesn't seem like much to us, but in the the world of the movie, this is a very exciting technology. The kaleidoscope is a very exciting technology. So, Daughters of the Dust is Afrofuturism with that juxtaposition of the past, present, and future. The same way Black Panther is, but set in very different times and settings. And absolutely, you know, there were some people who complained, why do they have to have spears? This is supposed to be futurism. It's like, well, guess what? As Black people, as African-descended people, we don't have the luxury of just throwing away our heritage and our history. And in fact, it's very important for us to understand, remember, acknowledge, and honor our heritage and our history. And you can do that from a meditation-powered spaceship. And yes, that is such a great moment. Thank you so much to Tanana Reeve for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.